everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we talked to Salt Lake County DA, Sim Gill. He was first elected DA in November of 2010. Welcome to our show. Thank you, David. Uh, happy to be here. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, well, uh, I was actually born in India, uh, and my father immigrated to the United States in 1969. The rest of us, we as a family, uh, emigrated up here in 1971. I grew up here in uh, Utah, in Salt Lake City, and uh, went to the University of Utah, uh, where I uh, have a degree in history and in philosophy, and then eventually ended up to going to law school at uh, Lewis and Clark College in uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, and with a, uh, where I got my law degree, as well as a uh, specialization in environmental and natural resources law. And uh, ended up coming back to uh, to Utah and uh, and uh, and became a public prosecutor and uh, and uh, you know prosecuted at the local level at a municipality uh, was with the district attorney's office. Uh, then I had the privilege of being uh, appointed as the chief city prosecutor for Salt Lake City in um, uh, in 2000. Uh, ran for Salt Lake County District Attorney in 2006, lost in a very uh, close race, and ran again in uh, 2009 and uh, 2010, excuse me, and uh, won. And uh, and I've been lucky to win uh, a couple of times after that. So I just uh, started about a year ago my third term uh, as the Salt Lake County District Attorney. So what sorts of issues are big in uh, Salt Lake County? You know, we have this, you know, you know, we're the largest district attorney's office in the state of Utah. Uh, and uh, I also, since I used to be a former Salt Lake City prosecutor, through an interlocal agreement, we brought them along as well. So uh, what that does is that uh, about 40% of crime all in, in the state of Utah is prosecuted out of this one office. So we're a largest uh, county. Uh, we're a metropolitan sort of center for the state of Utah. Uh, and we're the most... Uh, uh, dense county. So we have all the ch- sort of the same challenges that everybody else has, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, we have uh, your uh, homicides and gang issues. We've got uh, drug addiction issues. We've got mental health issues. Uh, we have, uh, uh, you know, the same challenges and concerns about uh, uh, criminal justice reform that you would find anywhere else. Uh, but as the largest DA's office uh, with the largest concentration, those issues are much more acute to us 
uh, in Salt Lake County than maybe some other parts of the state. So issues of mass incarceration, the intersection of uh, mentally ill uh, with the criminal justice system, drug addiction, uh, uh, the disproportionate impact it has on communities of color and communities of poverty, uh, poverty and those are all relevant issues that we have. Uh, the, the struggle to strike that balance between incarceration and treatment, uh, the criminalization of what are sometimes what I would call traditional uh, uh, public health issues uh, are just as uh, live and well and systemically challenging here in uh, in Utah, as it would be in any other major metropolitan uh, city in the in the in the country, you know, most people don't realize that a the average size of a district attorney office is generally about 11 to 12 people because we have a lot of rural counties. This is around the country. Uh, our office is uh, has approximately about 400 and. Uh, uh, no, excuse me, 338 people and about 130 lawyers. So we are actually a, uh, considered probably a second tier, a fairly large office. So with that size, we deal with the full range of complexity that the rest of the country is seeing. And uh, is uh, and we share the same concerns that they're sharing over there. What is the population that you're serving, uh, the size so uh, my county uh, here, Salt Lake County, has about, uh, about roughly about 1.2, 1.3 million people. Uh, it, uh, it has about 16 different law enforcement agencies that feed into it. Uh, and then we also have, uh, we're surrounded by four other very uh, counties that feed in into the daily population. So our nighttime population is about 1.2, 1.3 million and then, of course, we have our daily surges uh, from our adjoining counties that come to work and uh, with the different uh, employment opportunities that they have in the county as well. So um, tell us a little bit about uh, what you would consider to be your major accomplishments in, I guess, almost a decade in office. Yeah, well, you know, I've been a public prosecutor, like I said, for roughly about uh, 25 years. And uh you know, and, and my sort of trajectory really has been in this work has been focused around issues of restorative justice, uh, uh, you know, and I have a, a, a definition. And the definition is when crime happens, it causes injuries to victims, offenders and the communities in which crime occurs. Justice is the repairing of all those injuries. And my work as a public prosecutor really has been driven by a hypothesis that I've developed over those last 20 uh, some odd years. And my hypothesis is that when public policymakers fail to address the issues of social justice, economic justice, political justice, public health, education, employment, those public policy uh, uh, failures or deficits cause crisis in our community. And historically, uh, institutions of power have relied upon law enforcement uh, to be our crisis managers. And in application of that crisis management, it has disproportionately impacted communities of color and communities of poverty. And as a public prosecutor, then, I am left uh, to solve those public policy failures on the back end, which is the most expensive way to do it and the most draconian way sometimes to do it. And so, for example, when we get to sentencing, uh, I'm so often uh, finding our attorneys are often finding themselves trying to find uh, treatment for people, getting them housing, getting them education, getting them a place to live, uh, getting them employment. 
And these are those public policy deficits that we've uh, passed on to our criminal justice system. So my goal has been to uh, figure out which elements do we need to do early intervention, which are public policy issues, versus those issues which are purely public safety concerns, right? Because the role of a public prosecutor really should be to, one, starts with the idea of, of public safety, and then in the process and procedures that we engage in, deliver on systemic justice uh, and to make sure that victims are taken care of, make sure that uh, communities feel safe, and ultimately defendants who engage in criminal behavior have uh, uh, processes available for, to them to transition out because the premise of our criminal justice system is re uh, accountability uh, and rehabilitation. And what are we doing to actually uh, rehabilitate and bring these individuals back in. So I find myself in a really interesting role as a public prosecutor when all these different con uh, issues, public policy and pragmatic policies, converge together. And, uh, and so I've tried to approach my uh, responsibility uh, in, in, in trying to serve and solve those problems. And that's really been my sort of approach uh, and trajectory, uh, also how I, my philosophy on how to address these challenges that we have. One thing I found very interesting, and I've been talking to prosecutors and prosecutor candidates all over the country. And one thing that's interesting about uh, you is most of the people have uh, been elected only a year or two. Uh, and so you've been in for a decade. Um, and so you can kind of track this as as well as I can because in 2011 uh, we had an incident where I live and uh, uh, a uh, activist came in with the idea of having a restorative justice process and at the time I didn't know what restorative justice even was I had to research it and and now you talk to people all over the country and they're talking about restorative justice which I think is great. Um, yeah. So what does your program look like? Well, you know, and it's funny because, you know, I, I started talking about uh, restorative justice in 2000. And, uh, and for us, that was a conversation that we started early on. And, uh, and, and so if we take seriously that, tri you know, that three-part equation of victims, offenders, and communities where a crime happens, it really forces you to look at the issue systemically. And when you look at it systemically, you start to look at all the different uh, uh, interaction points which either contribute to the success or failure of the objective that we're trying to achieve. So early on, restorative justice really meant, so I helped the very first mental health court in the state of Utah uh, uh, almost, uh, almost now 19 years ago. Uh, and uh, and the idea was very simple because we know that the, that there was a disproportionate number of mentally ill individuals who were intersecting to the criminal justice system, right? When we look at the data, maybe two to three or two to four percent of our general population is mentally ill. But when you look under the most conservative studies in our jails and in our prisons, somewhere between 17 to 24 percent uh, uh, conservatively were mentally ill. And when you add it to it, uh, drug addiction as a co-occurring disorder, that number jumps and jumps up uh, uh, proportionally uh, up to almost 50 or 60 percent. And what became pretty clear was that when I would look at these mentally ill individuals who were intersecting to the criminal justice system, it wasn't like a mentally ill person woke up 
like another criminal might to say, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go out and let me see what crimes I can commit. Often the criminal activity was a result or a consequence of their mental illness. And so, you know, to, to highlight the issue, for example, everybody knows that, you know, the largest mental health facility in the United States of America is the L.A. County Jail. Uh, the, you know, depending on which study you look at, the second largest was Rikers Island, third largest was Cook County. And, and depending on which study you look at, you'd, uh, you'd need to go 14 or 15 down the list before you get to a publicly funded, publicly accessible mental health facility. So our jails and prisons were becoming the warehousers of our mentally ill individuals. So we said, OK, what if we did a Copernican shift, uh, a paradigm shift? Instead of using uh, uh, the prosecution as a tool for incarceration, as a tool for punishment, we took it as an opportunity to wrap services around mentally ill individuals, to get them the services and the medication that they needed. And as a result of that, what we were able to see was that we were able to reduce uh, uh, the, the recidivism rate of the mentally ill intersecting with the criminal justice system from about 72-74% down to 19-22%. and 22%. Now, while that is important in itself, what was also important was that we actually helped perpetuate a better quality of life, more empowerment and control, and a greater opportunity to transition out of the criminal justice system or at least reduce the frequency with which they were having contact with the criminal justice system. So that is a great example of taking a systems approach where the community wins and often victims won and, and also defendants won because more often victims who were victims of such crime generally wanted to get the help for these individuals. They want the person to be held accountable for their criminal behavior, but also to, uh, to get the help that they need. So restorative justice really is highlighted in, for example, in that kind of an approach. And it really is something that's exciting that now we're starting to talk about it because this is not just my reality in Salt Lake uh, uh, City, but this is a reality in New York. This is a reality in Chicago. It's a reality in Los Angeles and San Diego. And, uh, and if we don't change our paradigm, then we were simply basically uh, engaging in a, a criminal justice system that was giving a poor return on investment. David, you know that we jail more human beings than any other country in the world, and we are spending almost $70 billion nationally to prop up our mass incarceration state. And, for, and the return on investment that we are doing here is that uh, two-thirds of the individuals will generally be back behind bars within 36 months of their release. So as a policy, we were failing. As an investment, we were failing, and on a human level, we were definitely failing to achieve the objectives that we wanted. That's why restorative justice and criminal justice reform is such an important topic for us and has the urgency that it has. So shifting gears a little bit, there's been a debate in Utah over conviction integrity and a proposal. Um, yes. And maybe you can get into why the attorney general opposes it and what solutions you've implemented in your office? Well, certainly. You know, we were the first office in the state of Utah, uh, and I think we're, I think the only office right now where we created the first conviction integrity unit. And the idea is very simple. I, I, if I, as a public prosecutor, have the authority to uh, file charges and under that authority to, uh, to take away your liberty interest and have incredible co collateral consequences, then, if in the process 
uh, that I discover an error in the system or a error that contributed or uh, something that was not right, and you, in fact, are innocent of that, then I also, it is implied, if I have the authority to charge, that I have the authority to correct that wrong. In fact, I think it's morally and ethically and legally imperative to, for me to act upon it as quickly as I can when, uh, when that reality presents itself. And I believe that authority is implied within my authority as a public prosecutor. So we created the Conviction Integrity Unit, which uh, which is actually one thing that I'm really excited about. It, it, it has on our advisory board uh, the former Chief Justice, the first female Chief Justice in the, from the Utah Supreme Court. It has uh, uh, Justice uh, Durham is on our advisory board. Uh, judge Juta Brown, who was a, a longtime trial judge who retired, is on there. Uh, I have a, a person named Dave Schwendeman, who is a former federal prosecutor, who actually uh, was also uh, a prosecutor of war cr- crimes at the Hague, uh, post-Bosnia uh, 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 troubles. I have a prominent defense attorney. And so it's a high caliber of uh, professionals who help us review these claims of innocence. But more importantly, I've given them the independence that when they uh, reach a decision because I can't delegate my authority to them, but they give the the advisory opinion that we publish those advisory opinions for our community, whether I agree with them or disagree with them. And that creates a level of transparency and trust. And that ultimately gives us the kind of legitimacy uh, and trust that we want in our criminal justice system. So for us, this was intuitively uh, something that was we needed to do. So I'm, but I'm deeply was fascinated by the fact that our attorney general uh, uh, is opposing that because we said, okay, let's go ahead and codify what we believe to be our inherent power. So we uh, proposed a legislation, and the attorney general has come back and uh, objected to, to that. And and I'll be honest with you, I can't tell you why they're objecting. They first uh, said that this was going to impact post-conviction uh, relief uh, uh, and appeals. Uh, for those who are convicted. And we said, no, this is not a substitute for that appellate re- uh, review. Uh, and then uh, all we can gather is that it's either about ego or it's about uh, turf or ultimately it's about the resistance to this reform, which I think is long overdue in the criminal justice system. So we, uh, we were shocked uh, that they're fighting us on this. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen that in around the uh, country, uh, other prosecutors are, f- are facing a similar challenge from other attorney generals as well. Uh, so there's no logical uh, rhyme or reason for it. Uh, and uh, and maybe it's because it's just change. And, and sometimes some people are offended or suspicious of change. And others know that sometimes change is necessary if we want to achieve the objectives of justice and fairness that we uh, say that we claim about our criminal justice system. So, you know, that's been our experience. Today is the last day of the legislation, so we don't know if that's going to pass or not. But it, but our bill is supported by law enforcement. It's supported by prosecutors. It's supported by defense attorneys. It's supported by the ACLU, uh, Fair and Just Prosecution, and the Innocence Project that came out and uh, lent their voice to it. So, for for you know, we can't understand why the resistance is there. Uh, and uh, we hope maybe the, the legislature will uh, help us codify this. But, uh, but it's a long overdue uh, uh, thing. And we challenge every office to create uh, those conviction integrity units because the integrity of a system is measured not by our ability to get convictions, 
but to have the courage to correct the errors that may be made in the process of getting those convictions. Very interesting. Um, so uh, let's let's talk about another initiative. You launched it back in the fall, the criminal justice reform effort. You were the first in the country um, to allow for the reduction of convictions for more than 12,000 people. Um, yeah. Explain uh, why you did this and uh, how the process works. Well, uh, well, yeah, it's something we're very excited about. We, we did two things. One, we helped uh, uh, our office helped to uh, 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 create a law that helped uh, expedite expungement. So those individuals who go through the criminal justice system were often could benefit from uh, uh, getting those charges removed when they paid their debt to society. But there was a long, drawn-out process. So helping us to streamline that process statutorily help to fast-track that for those individuals. The other thing that we looked at was also that there, are, there were, we actually looked, went back about 15 or 17 years, and we looked at over 100,000 prior convictions of individuals who had gone through the criminal justice system, paid their debt to society, and could benefit from what we would call a one-step or two-step reduction of their conviction. So, for example, in our system, you have a, uh, we have uh, felonies and misdemeanors. And so if somebody is convicted of a, uh, uh, a third degree felony, uh, they would be entitled to have that be reduced to a class A misdemeanor or as a one step or a class B misdemeanor as a two step reduction. And we recognize that one, they had paid their debt to society. Two, that in this day and age, that criminal history is a millstone, a scarlet letter that follows them in a disproportionate way much longer after they paid their debt to society. So if you go to apply for a job or, or to, to get housing or to apply for student loans or get certain kinds of licensing or other government benefits that you're entitled to, you may be denied that because of this scarlet letter of a conviction. So the collateral consequences were disproportionate and, uh, and, and followed you along. So by us reducing that, so what we did is we looked at 100,000 cases, we identified 14,000 individuals, and we voluntarily reduced their conviction rates down uh, from their last known conviction. And, and we felt that that was an affirmative obligation on us since they had met their obligation that they should benefit from that. Now, that was not something we needed to do, but I certainly believe it was important and necessary for us to do if we're going to live up to our commitment for criminal justice reform and also recognizing that may help them further expunge those matters quickly and thereby change their economic reality, change the collateral impact for intergenerational poverty. And, uh, and if we're going to talk about reform, those are the kind of steps that we need to take. Um, all right. So... I'm going to get into two more issues here. Okay. Um, the first one um, looks like uh, bail reform. Um, so you guys yes. filed uh, an amicus curiae brief uh, in uh, the Fifth Circuit case of uh, Booth versus Galveston, urging the yes. court to affirm defendants' rights to counsel at initial bail hearings. So talk about that a little bit. Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, look, if, if, our, if our criminal justice system is going to have the legitimacy that we want it to have, 
And it does, uh, uh, when it does, it does because we know that the process has been fair and the due process rights of everybody has been, uh, uh, been, been uh, uh, met and that, uh, and that we have given them access to be able to uh, defend themselves uh, in a reasonable and effective way. And when, that, uh, when those uh, benchmarks are met, then if you get a conviction, then it creates a legitimacy uh, uh, in that process. So we, we absolutely believe that bail, uh, and especially cash bail, has such an important impact on individuals even before they've been adjudicated guilty. So having access to competent legal counsel is a critical uh, uh, element because the decision there will impact your liberty interest, whether you're going to be held uh, in detention awaiting trial. And in that process, you may lose your job. Your family may be impacted in a disproportionate way, and uh, and there are these uh, series of collateral consequences that can occur from uh, from that. And, and so we supported that uh, uh, right to counsel. And locally, we've taken on head on the idea of cash bail uh, alone, because cash bail, which has been used often to justify public safety and public risk, actually disproportionately impacts impacts communities of color and communities of poverty. And it, and it does not correlate to the idea of public safety. It basically just means that even though you may have committed a serious crime, if you're rich, you can buy your way out of it and, and you don't suffer the collateral consequences. So my office, we, uh, in fact, are happy to announce that uh, just passed to help uh, pass a bill that actually said that cash is something you can consider, but it cannot be exclusively be there uh, and bail is only equated with cash. Uh, it, it is to be there that, it, that bail can also be conditions of relief like ankle monitor, access to treatment, access to uh, other kinds of accountability. And that the cash is a sub part of that, but not the exclusive part of that. And that is really important because it also says that if you're a risk, then let's focus on pretrial detention based on the risk, not on your ability to simply uh, 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 bring money to the table. And, uh, and when we allowed a cash bail only model, it really, really does in a disproportionate way re-victimizes uh, re, uh, uh, those uh, individuals who yet have not had their day in court and it disproportionately impacts uh, poor people and uh, and communities of color. So we were, we've actually been able to pass that bill now, uh, this legislative session, where it does not compromise on public safety, but at the same time recognizes the limitations of cash bail exclusively. And then uh, I see you require your prosecutors to visit the jails where they send folks. I, I, I have yeah. not seen that anywhere else. Um, so can you explain that? Yeah. So, you know, we as public prosecutors have incredible power uh, to impact people's liberty interests and, uh, and under the right circumstances deprive you of that liberty by incarcerating you. And sometimes, you, uh, you know, when we start to look at it, uh, that uh, I could have prosecutors who've gone their entire careers but never seen the inside of a jail or what that experience is like. So as a result of that, we've made a commitment to, uh, and I believe with the fair and just prosecution, which was a challenge to prosecutors across the country. And we took on that challenge where we are going to require all of our prosecutors to visit a juvenile detention center 
to visit our local county jail and to visit our state prison because I want them to understand what the impact of our power is. And that's not to say that there are individuals who are genuinely a risk to our community who, uh, who need to be incarcerated. But at the same time, we need to recognize what, what the impact of our power and decision is. And the more that we understand that, then the better we're going to uh, be in judicious in exercising that authority. Because I thought it was incredibly, uh, uh, well, it was amazing to me that somebody could have an entire career as a prosecutor but never see the inside of a jail cell. But that is the reality of many people uh, at, the, at the end of our decisions that we make. So I thought it was a very important thing for us to raise that awareness and, uh, and something that will make us better prosecutors and more just prosecutors in the long, in the long term. So it seems like you have a pretty impressive list of accomplishments here. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, what the political climate is like. Have you had to fight for all of this? Are people questioning you or are you getting a lot of support? You know, that's a great question. Uh, you know, look, uh, uh, Utah is a, a very uh, conservative state uh, uh, until Ben McAdams, my my colleague, who was the county mayor who won uh as a, a, a congressman, uh, he and I were the two highest-ranking uh, Democrats elected in the state of Utah. Uh, so it's a very conservative state. Uh, and uh, but but uh, uh, you know, not only am I a, a Democrat, uh, but I'm a, I'm a immigrant. I'm a person of color. And ironically, I'm also, I believe, the first Indian-born district attorney elected in the history of the United States of America here in a very conservative state. Uh, so it's been always a, a battle, uh, but the way that I've approached this is that I have not tried to make it into a partisan issue, but I've made it into a common sense and pragmatic issue, a fiscal issue, a decency issue, an ethical issue, and our responsibility to solve problems issue. And, uh, and when we've approached it that way, uh, uh, we have been able to build a coalition of support because I may have conservative colleagues who are purely interested in the fiscal reality. And when they see that they're spending all this money but getting nothing in return, and then we say, here's a better model that will give you a better uh, return on investment, they sort of lean, lean forward. My progressive colleagues who say this is the right thing to do and the ethical thing to do uh, and, uh, and to create a fair and just process, uh, they lean in because they see the reform as an effort. So my approach has always been that let's not let our political divisions be the first uh, obstacle, but let's come up with practical solutions. And the other thing that I've done is that I've lo I look at my privilege as the elected uh, official of a, a district attorney's office as a service institution. How do I give access to my community so they feel connected to what we are doing? And not as some alien institution, but a, a completely connected with who we are. And because we've tried to break down those barriers. So, for example, for the last 18 years, 20 years, I've had what are called citizens days. Any citizen who is out there every Friday can come and meet with me. And if they want to come in and talk to me about my budget, about a policy decision that I made, or if they just want to come and yell at me, David, I tell them this is their right and it's my privilege to listen. And uh, because I don't want them to ever feel like they do not have access to us. Now, access doesn't always mean uh, agreement, but it is efforts like this. Uh, we're very open. We're very transparent. 
And we lean into and we respect the intelligence of our community with these conversations. And as a result, uh, you know, as a, a lone Democrat, uh, I've, uh, I've won three elections. Uh, that's the first time we've had a district attorney who's won three consecutive elections uh, in, a, in almost 50 years. And we talk about criminal justice reform. We talk about bail reform. We talk about uh, treatment. And we talk about uh, uh, helping the mentally ill. And that is no longer an alien concept. Now, maybe I've been lucky because I started this conversation 18 years ago as the city prosecutor. But this is something that we were able to demonstrate at the city level. We were able to demonstrate it at the county level, which led to a very productive conversation in a conservative state at the state level with our justice reinvestment efforts about taking a therapeutic justice approach uh, and an alternative to incarceration approach from a fiscal and human perspective, and we got that support. So I think it doesn't. if we can do it in Utah, we can do it probably pretty much in any other state, but it requires effort, it requires honesty, it requires uh, respecting the intelligence of our community and giving them access to this institution in a service model rather than a some sort of an authoritarian or alien uh, model uh, that they sort of fear or don't understand. Well, we are out of time for our show. I want to really thank you. Uh, it was a very enlightening conversation. It's hard to imagine, and I hope you don't take offense to this, that you can accomplish all of this in, in Salt Lake County, Utah. <laughs> well, and I think therein lies, and, as, as, and I don't take offense to that, but in therein lies, in that statement, also lies the hope and the possibility that it can be done. But, uh, but if we are uh, united in our efforts, if we're committed to our cause, and we respect uh, our, our community and give them access to the levers of the power, and have honest conversations, then it can be done. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you, David, for the opportunity. Have a wonderful day. You too. That was Sim Gill. He is the elected district attorney in Salt Lake County, Utah. He's one of two high-level Democrats elected in the entire state. And as you just heard, he talks the language of criminal justice reform as well as anyone we've talked to. This is Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.